0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an
1: IFG live event.
0: Hello, good evening and welcome to the uh, last lap in the IFG civil service marathon. So well done if you've been present at every session today. Uh, As you will know, we've been bringing you today's discussion about civil service reform in partnership with Oracle. I'm Jill Rutter, I'm a senior fellow at the Institute of Government and I'm absolutely delighted to host today's panel. Many decades ago when I went to the University Careers Service, I said that there was just one criterion I had for my job, which is I did not want to work in London. But I got into the civil service fast stream and of course spent my entire career in SW1. Because that's basically what you do so i've worked in the us i've worked in madrid i've worked in germany but never anywhere else in the uk and that's pretty typical despite repeated efforts of governments to disperse civil servants around the country of course the majority of civil servants let alone public servants work nowhere near london but london has for decades and decades and decades monopolized policy making ministers now say that should change Michael Gove in his Ditchy Lecture made clear that he thought it's better that policy making might be made in Teesside or Aberdeen. And we've had the Prime Minister talking about moving Parliament out uh, to the London of the north, which is York. Um, but in this panel, we're going to ask, should it change? What would be the benefits? What might be some of the problems? And will it change? Uh, you know, we've had this goes at this before, but uh, you could say that they failed to counter the London centricity of our government. But has Zoom and the experience of managing through COVID finally broken the need to be able to get to the room where it's happening in five minutes flat? And how should that change be managed? Uh, A report on the move of the ONS to Newport, where nine out of 10 staff didn't move, suggests it damaged the quality of statistics. So people are saying that ONS's recent performance should uh, maybe cause us to reconsider. So can we disperse, uh, but retain what institutional memory exists? Remember one of Michael Gove's other criteria was that we retained expertise and institutional memory. So those are sort of things we're going to be discussing. Please post your questions and we'll ask them. And we're particularly interested if you've got questions that you want to post from outside London. So let us know, and I will prioritize anyone who's not in London now but maybe also people who are worried about moving out of London, what that would mean for them. Got an absolutely phenomenal panel. We've got Philip Rycroft, who retired. Could it really be last year as Permanent Secretary at DEXEU? Uh, tells us he's not applied to be Cabinet Secretary, despite being eligible. And he's alternated between Scotland and London in his career. Then we've got Leslie Ann Nash, who is a director at the Cabinet Office. and She's going to share with us her experience of uh, how you make these moves work and what's happened in the past. Paul Swinney is policy director from Centre for Cities, who look at whether this is actually the panacea and the sort of first move you make if you're really serious about levelling up. And then Andy Burnham, last but not least, the mayor of Greater Manchester. And I think it's probably fair to say, at least this is my take out from hearing Andy on the radio, slightly frustrated at the very London-centric way in which the response to COVID has been run and possibly arguing that actually, you know, it would be better if we thought maybe not about dispersion but about decentralization and moving the power rather than the people. So that's our panel and we're going to sort of, with some questions, pitch to the panel but do start pitching in and we'll try and get everybody chatting away as we can. So Philip, let's start with you. Uh, you think that there'll be benefits if we uh, if we move people out. So why would moving where people's desks are lead to better government?
2: Uh, very good question, Jill. I speak to you from Scotland. So um, uh, in terms of getting your debate going from outside of London, you made a good start there, which has been my home for 30 odd years, including uh, the 10 years or so when I worked Um, for the UK government. I think the the critical question is the one you've identified. Clearly, the majority of civil service jobs are already outside London, about 350,000, I think, at the last count, 80,000 or so in London. But over 70% of the senior civil service uh, are London-based. And that stickiness of the senior policy roles in London, I think, is a reflection of the centralised polity that is England and all previous efforts to move civil service outside of London have not really shifted that London bias. Uh, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think the risk to civil service is that that focus on London is a homogenising experience. Whatever their background, wherever they've come from, people end up sharing much the same cultural milieu, live in similar parts of town, all around and about, and share essentially the same experiences. And that wouldn't matter so much if London was like everywhere else in the country, but London uh, is different. And I think that gives people um, uh, a a view of the country um, which um, is too narrow. It can be compensated for, of course, to some extent by getting out and about, but that in the past at least has been very limited by the demand to be present. The prevailing expectation, not least from ministers, that senior folk are on call whenever required. And I have, as I've mentioned, personal experience of this, seven years in the Cabinet Office and Dexu, lived throughout that time in Scotland, responsible for offices in Edinburgh and Cardiff. And it was incredibly difficult to juggle all of that, not least because remote access to meetings was often terrible. There were very few allowances made for the fact that people might be dialing in and the kit Um, was usually appalling. It was like dialing in often from the bottom of a well. Now, I have no doubt at all that the civil service would benefit from greater dispersal. It's about understanding the country that the civil service uh, is serving, attracting a wider range of talent, people who can't or don't want to live in London, and about bringing in people rooted in a very different milieu with different day-to-day experience of different contexts. So we can talk about why that's a benefit Um, in a bit more detail as the conversation unfolds. But just before I I finish on all of this, just to pick up up your thought about decentralisation, it's not just about understanding the country that the civil service serves, but it's also recognising that the country Firth of London is actually quite capable of doing much of that governing itself. In other words, this ideally should be done as part of a far broader sweep of real decentralisation and devolution in England. And if that happens, in my view, uh, the UK would end up being a very much better governed place.
0: Thanks very much, Philip. We've got a very interesting comment already from Rachel McCann from HSE, who's uh, been quite positive about the way in which uh, she says a lot of them are based up in Liverpool. And they, she thinks they've finally sorted out video conferencing. So maybe we now have the key enabler in place to make this work. But Leslie Ann, is it just a case of getting the tech to work? Or what are the lessons from other
1: attempts to uh, relocate people out of London? And haven't there been lots of attempts? Reflecting over the weekend, I was thinking about them all. And they've been a lot of starts. And somehow, most of the starts have somehow run out of steam. If we go back to the Lions review of two thousand and four, his objective was to reduce disparity in the economic fortunes of the regions. That sounds like a more sophisticated way of saying levelling up or building a country that works for everyone. To go to Philips' point, the senior civil service in london, a hundred virtually one hundred percent, of Treasury, Cabinet Office and Bays are still uh, stuck in London. Um, The starts have been um, frequent over the last few years. My direct involvement started in 2013, when I was the cross-government policy lead for our arms-length bodies. And at that time, it was considered really appropriate that we found some high-profile ALBs to move wholesale out of London as a statement of intent and the catalyst for other public and private sector moves. There have been successes and failures in that. You mentioned, Jill, the ONS. More successfully actually was the Met Office to Exeter. Exeter University is now a fantastic environmental science hub and the Met Office supercomputer, um, Cray, has located its head office, its global head office in Bristol. So there are successes there. I think the problem that we've had though with all the initiatives that we've done is that we've concentrated on the property. We've just thought, okay, let's just move people into buildings and reduce the cost of our our Whitehall estate. I think more recently we've reached a bit further. We've reached into Bays and partnered with the local industrial strategies the um the Lex, for example, have just delivered their um local industrial strategies. They landed at Whitehall at the time of brexit and uh, uh, a, a general election, not to mention a pandemic, but hopefully they will have some um uh, some future. I continued my negotiations with um chairs and um, chief executives of ALBs. And you find that these advance rapidly when coupled with the right ministerial support. But they equally quickly evaporate when that ministerial support moves on. And we know how frequently the ministers move. So I think less start and more sustained effort. And anyone looking at this ought to look back at the 2004 Lions Review, because a lot of what was said it still remains very valid today. So, Leslie ann one
0: of the things that, uh, that the coalition government you worked for did was ditch the government offices in the regions, which always struck me as actually quite a good way of putting departments out there and offered Whitehall staff the chance to go and serve out there. Yeah. Was there any reflection by the time you came into government in 2013 that actually that was detaching Whitehall even more from the
1: regional view? No, absolutely, and you know you know the problem of corporate memory, Jill, as well as uh, as well as I do. I think that that's being revisited in the sort of places for growth in the estate strategy, and this idea of hubs and having bits of government departments coexisting in one location with ALBs and potentially with private sector. So we are certainly trying to move back into that back in that direction.
0: Okay, now coming on to Paul. Uh, Paul, is this? You know, Leslie Ann's talked about Lyons saying this was actually not to improve the quality of decision making. That seems to be what ministers think it's for now. But this was part of a reducing regional disparity. I'm not sure whether Exeter and Bristol are top of the list for reducing regional disparity. Be more willing to send ALBs to places like Bootle and uh, whatever. Um, is this a powerful? Tool of regional policy, or should we actually forget all of that?
3: Well, I think if we're thinking it's going to bring uh, economic prosperity to certain areas, we're probably barking up the wrong tree. I've got a lot of sympathy about the ideas around uh, trying to sort of get government decision making a little bit more plural, different backgrounds, as, as Philip was saying earlier. Um, And I think there's a trade off there between having everybody in one place and the benefits of having that clustering of everyone in one place and actually trying to get a a broader reflection on, on policy, which may well be a good thing. But, you know, there has been a lot of efforts to try to do this in the past. And I think you could probably make an argument that the Labour government in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, one of their responses to places that were struggling was to try and get more public sector jobs out to them. And indeed, actually, there's, there's, that's happened sort of even the decades before that. If you go to, to Newcastle, you'll see a huge campus, which I think has got DWP and HMRC on it. Um, lots and lots of jobs there. But, you know, the city then still faces uh, some very big challenges. Now, the real thing we need to be thinking about is how do you try and attract not just a couple of thousands public sector jobs to a place, but tens of thousands of private sector jobs to a place? And I think we can be a little bit distracted about we've got this fantastic lever where we're going to move the government. The government's got all this aura around it. And indeed, you know, I think the BBC was similar, and Andy may disagree, in Salford, where huge aura around the BBC, international reach, massive brands. But that's much bigger than any economic impact we should expect to have and we're only going to leave ourselves a little bit disappointed. Now I think what we can do and this might be starting to steal some of Andy's lines you know if we are thinking about trying to move jobs out to try and improve local economies is about actually moving powers out and so what you do is you move some of that power base out from Whitehall out to, to different city regions you give you build capacity of institutions in those areas to be able to make their own decisions to improve economic sorry, economic policy. So, for then trying to track those businesses in, and what you then do in the job moving process is you move a position that might be in Bays or might be in Treasury, and once in a time as part of central government, out to say Greater Manchester. So actually that capacity then becomes something that generates policy for Greater Manchester rather than being a job that generates policy at the national level, where it's probably actually inappropriate to make some of those policy decisions at a national level anyway. So that movement of power we should be looking for, not just the movement of jobs.
0: If you look at the ways of making uh, making central decision makers more sort of region aware, do you see any merits in that? On those sort of, you know, there may be fewer decisions being made by central government, there still will be some decisions being made by central government.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've got some sympathy with that argument. And certainly, I think if we all sort of have, you know, the, this massive group thing going on in one part of the country, then that isn't necessarily a great thing. However, having said that, let's say we move um, parts of central government to York, as has been mooted in in recent weeks, there will be very quick, you'll you hear people going, there's a massive York bias to how we make um, decision making uh, in this country and it's ridiculous. And, you know the very nature, I think, of the way that government operates is that you're going to have to choose one place or two places or three places where you do this. And there will always be these, those accusations of bias. And so I just think we need to be careful around that sort of thing to recognise that, you know, some movement of jobs to one part of the country doesn't then mean that we're getting sort of reflections from across the whole country. That's uh, that's
0: very interesting. I was doing a thing last week with people pitching for where they're... Uh whether their city should have the new parliament. And I think there are about four different cities in Yorkshire all complaining that the other one shouldn't get it. So I think just picking picking a winner is not gonna be the easy decision the government might think it is. When to come now to, to Andy, there's a very specific question that I'm gonna to put to you. But first of all, uh, are you waiting for Manchester to benefit from, uh, from moving some government departments up to you? Is this something that you would welcome sitting there?
4: Yes, of course, uh, Jill. Um, I think there's a, a, a very big case for it, as the other speakers have, have, rightly, have rightly said. But you know, I think that point about what does it actually achieve is an important point. So let me give you a, a, a live example of something that's happened in Greater Manchester in the last year that I think could have that wider knock-on industrial benefit uh, that perhaps some moves of the past haven't achieved. And it's the move of GCHQ uh, to city centre Manchester. I think there was a recognition within the organisation that they couldn't attract the diverse workforce they needed, particularly modern intelligence agency needs to be hearing, particularly from all walks of life in terms of understanding its its work. And obviously that couldn't be done by being largely located in and around uh, Cheltenham. Therefore, um, there needed to be a sort of an innovation uh, centre and Manchester was was felt to be a, a good place for it. But the reason I'm saying that that is a good example of this working is that we've already then got interest from big private sector organisations based in um, cyber and intelligence uh, coming in on the back of the GCHQ uh, move. And it's early days, but I, I'm certain that will prove to be a good example of, of relocation that will benefit the Greater Manchester economy. But to pick up on some of the themes, if you don't mind, you others have raised, why hasn't it worked in the past? Uh, And it hasn't particularly worked in the past, has it? Let's be honest. Um, Those campuses have been created in in other parts of the country. I think it's largely because it's been support functions or back office functions that have been uh, relocated. So there's a sense of the the, the unglamorous uh, side of uh, Whitehall has been uh, has been relocated uh, and it almost becomes even less glamorous when it goes out of London. And it's a bit of a, a forgotten outpost. I think that's one reason. Uh, I think the other uh, main reason, though, that I would um, point to, it's well, two actually. It, it's not so much the relocation of civil servants that will level up the country. It's it's the the wiring of the country, the way the whole thing works, and particularly I'm thinking, for instance, of the Treasury Green Book. You know, until you rewrite that, to um, change the way public uh, infrastructure funding is handed out, then I don't think you could move as many departments as you like and I, I still don't think you would see a, an appreciable uh, change in the in the way in which uh, investment is allocated across the country. It's inherently biased mm. to London and the southeast and, and that has to has to change. But it is that point that was being made about power needs to come with it for the for the region that is the uh, the receiving region, if you like, for uh, for the relocation. So I'll give you a very, very live example that's been in the weekend papers, Jill, mm-hmm. which kind of illustrates uh, the point and actually brings out a concern I have. And it's the suggestion that we're about to see the creation of a Northern Transport Acceleration Council, uh, which is no bad thing, by the way, uh, chaired by the Transport Secretary, uh, alongside a DFT North, I think it's it's being, uh, being called. At the same time as sort of uh, kind of casting some sort of doubt over the future of transport for the north, well, there's a problem with this because transport for the north talks for the north. Mm. Um, it represents all of the leaders of the north, and actually, in the midst of the timetable chaos of May 2018, kind of was the for me as a as a mayor trying to get kind of bring some order back to our railways. Transport for the North was the body that that most sort of focused on the issue, requested the appointment of a troubleshooter, um, called for the operator of last resort to be appointed. And these measures in the end have kind of helped bring back some stability. Would would DFT have done that? I don't think they would. It's because we had a body that was just purely advocating for the North of England, I think, was able to to, to make some progress. So it worries me a lot if we're saying that we're going to sort of sideline the devolved voice and just go back to the top-down voice of government within our region. That that alone is definitely not good enough. Uh, I want to see relocation alongside devolution. Um, so, do you think, uh,
0: sorry? so um, I mean, interesting whether you think there's a risk that if the government disperses people it'll actually use that as a justification for keeping on to powers it'll say oh, actually look half our staff are sitting in Manchester so of course we understand Manchester's needs and and we don't need you sort of elected more um, more politicians up there we're we're getting enough Manchester frankly yeah that's okay we're based up there now
4: I think there's definitely a risk of that I think you put your finger right on the problem um it can be a kind of uh almost a tokenistic gesture to the regions if you're not careful then it's just a, a way of um, reasserting uh, top-down control we have a large presence of department for education uh, uh, employees in city centre manchester but we have very little commitment to devolution from the department for education uh so you know i i don't want to see more of that because that doesn't in my view empower the regions level up at the country just one last point to, to make and it's it's almost as if you know government departments are doing us a favour by even considering coming to our 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 regions that's the way it's often done and and suggested and i remember very vividly as culture secretary uh, just over a decade ago when i was overseeing the move of the bbc to salford and to say it was grudging would be a massive understatement but i look at the bbc today compared to the bbc of back then and i think it is much more in touch with the mood of the country today than it was then it's far less ivory tower uh, than it was you hear more regional accents now routinely on on the airwaves and i think as a result the national broadcaster is in a better place with regard to the country gchq recognize this as well i think but they're doing it much more enthusiastically than the bbc did so government has kind of Become distrusted, hasn't it, over the years, of under all political parties? It's it's remote from the it's felt to be remote from the from the country. And that's dangerous for us all in terms of what that does to trust in democracy and, and trust in our institutions. It would be in the best interests of UK PLC if these organizations fully embraced the move, brought their senior decision makers to the cities. UK government would then see much more of the people, of the whole country. And I think our, our democracy probably would be uh, in, a, in a stronger place for it.
0: So, Andy, we've got a question. I'm going to put it to you as the sort of politician in the room. One of the reasons why the senior policy people all say they need to be in London is that they need to get to ministers quickly, and ministers don't want to do a Zoom chat. Maybe they've got used to it. And we've got a question here from Anonymous. Hi, Anonymous, one of many Anonymouses. Um, asking whether we need to move ministers as well. Is it enough to move the civil servants uh, that didn't feature in Michael Gove's ditchley speech? But you know, should we have a minister based in here you know, in Manchester? Is that feasible with urgent questions being granted on a much more regular basis and things like that?
4: I think that depends on Parliament, doesn't it? You know, if Parliament is ready now to having dabbled with um, video links, uh, is ready to use them more uh, permanently, then. Of course, it is perfectly possible for a minister to be based in Leeds, Manchester, Newcastle, wherever uh, wherever you like. I think you mentioned that was the big reason when I used to sort of raise these kind of issues as a minister. Why can't we relocate X or Y? And that, that old chestnut would always come out. Oh, well, we've got to be in with the minister the thing is actually most ministers don't want the civil servants in with them so it actually would suit ministers that they couldn't have civil servants running into the room uh, every time they come up with a dangerous thought so i, I would say that you know uh, I, I think that that was a bit of a an old you know an old sort of uh uh line of defense wasn't it from any any uh relocation scheme i think that one's that that one's evaporated now jill i don't think anyone could could seriously pull that one out of the out of the bag now even if even if Zoom links freeze every now and again, I think you can still have a perfectly good conversation over a video link, uh, Minister to Civil Servant.
0: OK, well, we've got another question from another anonymous. I'm not sure it's the same anonymous asking about how we reconcile ministers who are not keen on losing those links, uh, links to their civil servants. How do we actually get them to buy in to relocation? But I wanted to pick up with, um, with Philip. The risk that quite a lot of questions are highlighting that actually... All this does is, you know, create sort of mini Londons of civil service bubbles sitting in a few nice university cities and actually doesn't do anything to address where the real disadvantage is in sort of excluded towns, in less well-off communities, arguably a bit more remote. You know, how, if you were doing this to maximise the benefits, would you actually ensure that it's more than just sort of, you know, London with a sort of of people sitting in central Manchester and everybody commuting in from Alderley Edge or wherever all the footballers live?
2: Um, well, if you can commute in from Alderley Edge on a civil service salary, you must have family money because okay. I'm not sure that civil servants could compete with the footballers. I, I think we're also talking about this in a sort of almost a static way. You've got to move a whole body of folk um, in one lump, as it were, to a different part of the country. That's one model but you can also disperse individuals. I mean, my own experience, I commuted to London um, over essentially 10 years working in Whitehall. Uh, That experience could have been made a lot simpler if there'd been a a, a greater ability to to work remotely. If the experience of dialing into meetings had been one of equality, what we're finding now because of the pandemic is that we're all dialing into lots of meetings from all over the country other organisations I'm involved in, a lot of people saying that this has equalised access. Um, to, so you don't now need to be in London present in the room to feel that you're having equal say in those meetings. So you can have more individuals outside of London as well as whole teams, maybe coming in um, you know, once a week or whatever it is, that is perfectly uh, manageable. Let me just give you one example of why this matters. I was based in Scotland, live in Scotland, throughout the Scottish referendum campaign, and I was responsible for advising UK government ministers on that campaign. It was a huge benefit to me that I was at the weekends, was rubbing shoulders with folk who were worried about this, who were uh, who, some who were enthused by it, so folk of the nationalist persuasion, as well as people who were going to support the unionist side. Mm-hmm. I was out and about in different parts of Scotland, seeing um, which, which uh, stickers had been defle- uh, defaced, what was in the windows, and so on. I had a far better feel for what was going on in Scotland than any of my colleagues uh, in Whitehall. And you know, if we'd had more folk like me in different parts of the country in the run-up to the, uh, the, the Brexit referendum, I think that Whitehall would have reflected rather differently on that, that experience as well. So it's not just about a, a body of folk going to York or Bristol, wherever it may be. It is about people having different hinterlands, different experiences, and bringing that to bear as well. And with modern technology, uh, coronavirus is actually, uh, has taught us that this is all perfectly feasible and manageable. So
0: we've got some comments, Leslie-Ann, from some people about how actually HMRC has shown the way with its hubs that you can actually have a decent career. Because one of the problems have been, I used to work at DEFRA. DEFRA relocated one policy department to Bristol. Uh, the people there were sort of trapped working on wildlife. Very few of them wanted to come back to London. And I think the same was true when they moved the Manpower Services Commission up to Sheffield, that people had a very nice lifestyle there, but the promotion opportunities were back. But it was, you know, lifestyle versus uh, promotion. How do we manage this to give people decent careers or have we now cracked it? Because, you know, Philip's model of commuting may not long distance commuting a day or two away may not be for everybody. But how do we sort of equalize that?
1: So we, we 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 haven't cracked it. Um, a 21st century career does not mean 20 or 30 years in the civil service or in one government department. It 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 means ideally a permeable move between the public and private sector. So I'm really in favour of co creation. So. The LEP, the, the LEP in Manchester, the development of the local industrial strategy can work with central government, can work with Bays to look at what that region needs. And people based in Manchester know what that region needs much more than those, those, those based in Whitehall. So that you actually create an area where I could land in Manchester, I use Manchester as an example, with a public sector job. But actually, I might move to a very interesting private sector employer who's been attracted to that area and back again. And think about my partner. My partner might need, need a job. There might be an amazing educational institute there. So it's got to be a holistic view and not just about government departments or ALBs. Uh, Paul?
3: Yeah, I think that raises an important point because there's, you know, despite my, I think, scepticism oh. about um, well, the economic impact of, of moving the these jobs out. I think there's then a question of, OK, well, if you are going to move these jobs out, then where are you going to put them to uh, have the greatest impact or, indeed, to sort of preserve the quality of, of the institution? Now, the ONS example shows us that actually the move out to ONS was, uh, to Newport sorry, wasn't particularly successful. But why is that? It's a small city Uh, The opportunity to move into a private sector job if you get sick of your job at the ONS is pretty limited. Um, Perhaps job opportunities for a a partner are fairly more limited as well. So my suspicion would be uh, that if the ONS had gone to Manchester, for example, or gone to Leeds, the story would have been somewhat different. Now, it wouldn't have revolutionised either economy. And again, we've got to be so careful about um, about claims around that. But then you would probably have, you know, a little bit of a different dynamic going on in terms of how successful that department or organisation continues to be. Because Guernsey Place has actually got a lot of jobs in it uh, already, and it's got a lot of uh, a lot of workers there as well. So there's actually quite a lot of choice going on in terms of where you might want to work. And so that's a, an important thing within this. You know, to flip it on its head. a you know, while again, I think. Our research shows that you know the BBC move move to Salford was a positive thing for Greater Manchester. Fantastic. It wasn't a massive impact. It certainly wasn't as big as the you know, the glitzy sort of brand the BBC has got. But if the BBC had moved to Swansea, for example, then uh, perhaps that that impact would have been even smaller than what it actually has been. So if you are going to move these institutions out, move them to um, move them to institute move them to cities that can support them.
0: That's quite interesting. There's quite a few comments coming in on uh, on the uh, Q&A saying actually are we slightly targeting the wrong thing that isn't actually this homogeneity not a sort of function of geography because a lot of people have, at least have come to London from other places but actually is more a sort of class thing that we really really haven't cracked sort of better socioeconomic distribution in Whitehall. Andy I don't know whether you Sort of think that, you know, is are we talking about trading middle class opportunities in London for middle class opportunities in Manchester? And it's actually not going to make that sort of mindset difference of increasing representation uh, and the diversity of the civil service. If we just moved a bunch of people to, you know, recruit Manchester graduates, very nice people. Um,
4: possibly, Jill, but it's still worth doing just because those people who are making decisions for the country, are living in a different environment if you're commuting in manchester every day rather than commuting in london every day i think you would make different decisions on transport policy uh, than the civil servants going in and out of the dft and martian street uh, are making every day because if they experience the reality of the greater manchester transport system and the disparity i mean it's 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 massive i mean look at second third cities in other countries around around Europe they all they have undergrounds they have extensive tram systems they have undergrounds and tram systems they have buses you cannot compare uh, any English city outside of London to their equivalents in Europe when it comes to transport and I think that reflects the fact that civil servants have not been commuting in other English cities uh, at all ever uh, and therefore they don't make good decisions but do you know, I think in the end, though, it does enable a ladder to be created into the civil service. It wouldn't happen straight away. In the In the short term, you are just mm. taking sort of university educated people and putting them in a different place. You see, Manchester's at a really interesting point now, I think, Jill, in its, in its development. So I graduated from Cambridge in 1991 and I came back to Manchester and wanted to work there. And I just couldn't find a sort of job that I was, you know, what I wanted to work in the media at that time. I, I ended up as an unpaid reporter on the Middleton Guardian. It wasn't what I wanted. And in the end, I had to kind of, sort of throw my cards in and go to London. I mean, that, that that was what happened to young people growing up in the north, or still does, actually. But So Manchester has made progress. I mean, I, actually, I'm much more positive than Paul about the BBC's move to Salford, because there are thousands of really good jobs there, and there's a clustering effect going on in Media City of other businesses that are coming on the back of the BBC. There are so many more media jobs in Manchester today than when I was looking to get into the media uh, there 30 years ago. But actually, there's other names there. I mentioned GCHQ before. I could mention um, the Bank of New York. I mean, I could reel off a whole, you know, I won't do the boring thing of reeling them all off as like, proud mayors do. But there are some big names in Manchester City Centre now and our skyline looks very different to what it looked like in the early 1990s. It's a modern, attractive city. And I I think we've hit a point now where it isn't kids from Greater Manchester who are in these gleaming new skyscrapers. They are relocated people largely in those buildings. However, a big part of my mission as mayor is to go around our 10 boroughs. And I do say this directly to the kids of Greater Manchester. You see those gleaming skyscrapers Mm. over there. I want you to believe that you can work in those buildings and you can walk through the doors confidently and you can take those jobs there. So we're not quite there yet, but that is a massive part of what I see as my mission as mayor. to not just bring these exciting jobs to Greater Manchester, but then to open the doors of these skyscrapers to the talented kids of our 10 boroughs. We're not there yet. But that's definitely where we're going in the next phase.
0: That's very, very interesting. There was a comment saying, "Would Pacer trains have survived if uh, <laughs> DFT <laughs> no. was based up north?" Which, having discovered Pacer trains uh, during the election last year, being slightly stunned by them, I think probably definitely not. So I think that's sort of slightly underlining underlining that point. Philip, I wanted to ask you if you were sort of designing the package around moving. So you're in a central government department. And you're told that your permanent secretary not beyond the realm of imagination and you're asked to move your department what sort of package and offer do you need to make to your staff a lot of people are a bit worried here you know we've had issues about spouses issues about people not wanting to lose their london waiting things like that how would you actually you know manage the move is it sort of you know, We're we're all off and if you don't like it you're out or quite how does that happen? Because I think that's quite important to Actually, you know getting some
2: continuity. It's a good question Just to pick up on that previous discussion. I for a while um, Was the the most senior as a sort of a, a DG civil servant in the Glasgow office of the Scottish Government and because that office had been established for a long time It did draw folk in from the city. So there was lots of folk with very deep experience of of Glaswegian backgrounds which was a huge benefit to the policy making because we were talking about um, education or whatever it was for Glasgow or giving kids better opportunities there were folk there who had traveled that road so now that was an established office had been around for some time and clearly you've got to make a start so you're moving fair count. it's a very good question what sort of deal is is done uh, for people um, and clearly you have to make it worth their while financially you can't punish them financially for this and you have to it does cost money and you have to recognize that uh, in order to deliver those longer term benefits and um, but like many other professions um you sign up to work in the organisation. You don't sign up for a geographical plane. When I joined the civil service a long time ago, uh, I was told I could be posted anywhere. As it happened, I, it was convenient for me. At the time I got posted to Edinburgh, but I could have been posted to London. That's the deal you sign up for. So there is a, there is a wee bit of a balance there between the individual's needs and circumstance uh, and the support you give them to help them manage any relocation. And the needs and requirements of the organisation as a whole, uh, and the organisation ultimately um, uh, has to has to prevail in terms of creating um, the, the sort of dispersed policies uh, that it thinks are best for the civil service and ultimately for the country.
0: Got a question from Anonymous, just asking about what's a realistic time frame. I don't know whether you or Lesley-Ann would like to come in on, you know, would you be doing this in a year? Would you to get it over a sort of, you know, sharp shock or would you actually be saying to ministers, if we're going to make this work, it's got to be done over quite an extended period?
1: It can only be done over an extended period, I would say. But I think it was Andy's point about the um, our spending review process. So we do have to make an investment. If you're going to encourage a whole family to relocate, that costs money. But actually, our spending review process does not incentivise our perm Sex and our ministers to make that long-term decision about spending with a very delayed benefit. Um, and so even, I mean, you could, you, could, you could even see circumstances, and I was calculating the benefit for some of the ALBs, it was a deeply negative financial MPV. But actually, the non-quantifiable benefits outweighed the quantifiable benefits. But the, when you talk to Treasury, they didn't see through that. They couldn't see beyond uh, the, 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 the MPV and that long term, the investment, the, the intent to
2: invest in the long term just wasn't there. If I could just come in briefly again, again, we're, we're tended to think about this of, of moving whole blocks of people, which is just part of this. You also need to think about the incentives for people in terms of their career, how they manage their careers. Mm-hmm. Lesley Ann has already said that you're, you're looking now, um, uh, folk are coming into civil service, uh, the brilliant uh, young people I work with in Dex, who, who, will come in and out of government over, you know, over over time. Um, one thing that you could do pretty rapidly is to say, from um, the expectation is, if you want to get promoted in the senior civil service. Um, working for the UK government, you will have to have demonstrated in your career a stint working outside of London. So in the health service maybe, maybe uh, for a devolved mayor, maybe in local government, maybe in for a devolved government or somebody else. So you you're getting people used to the idea that to get on in the civil service, they're going to have to bring different skill sets, different experiences to that. So you break that sense that you were describing earlier on, Jill, that you come into a London department or a London-based department, and and that's where you stay as a policymaker for 30, 35, 40 years of a career. And that is you could you could start shifting those incentives uh, boundaries really quite quickly before you have to start shifting a lot of folk. That's very interesting. We've got quite a lot of questions coming in
0: here about uh, uh, quite a lot of debate going on. It has to be said about this, about whether we can do anything for rural areas. Um, there's an example being given of DARA, the Northern Ireland Agriculture Department, has moved its HQ to Bally Kelly, a village in the northwest or whatever, to reflect the rural nature of its thing? I mean, should we be saying to Defra, you know, here's a village you ought to move to? Does anyone think that's a sort of decent idea? Paul, should we be thinking beyond the sort of usual suspects into rurality, where that's a key issue to be understood? Well,
3: I think it takes us back to this point about if we start, you know, you sort of, you move, you move jobs or some jobs to, to one area, and then you sort of get yourself back into this this argument of, oh, well, then you're biased towards, you know, place X where you're based rather than being based in London and we can't sort of spread mm. this out everywhere. I think, so two things you would do about that. I think the first is that um, you have to recognise that actually if you are going to move these jobs, you're going to have to put them in a, a place, which is of a sizable population to make sure that, you know, if there's enough job opportunities outside of that public sector organisation, if somebody wants to move on, but also that, that public sector organisation has actually got a reasonable pool of people to, to choose from. And you know, if you're based in a, in a rural area, whether you're a government department or you're a large private sector company, you're going to struggle to, to get people to come and work for you. Um, so we've just got to be careful here about how the economics of all of this work. But then I think the second point is, going back to my original comments, you know, if we're thinking about this from a from an economic impact in particular, but actually also to some extent from making sure that different views are heard from, from different parts of the country, then the answer is not about moving central government jobs around, the answer is about moving powers around and pushing powers down that are appropriate to the right geography. So, you know, if for, um, let's say for a more rural area, for Cumbria, let's say, if we made a um, one large Cumbria council and got rid of the districts underneath, got rid of the duplication and then made a a stronger Cumbria institution, which had more powers attached to it, then all of a sudden you would have a great degree of policy making within that institution that would reflect the challenges and the needs of of that particular area, which would be different to what you might face in Shropshire and definitely different to what you might face in, in Greater Manchester. So that's the conversation I think we need to be having more of. But, of course, local government reorganisation is very, very difficult and a political hot potato. Moving public sector jobs out of London is much easier to do. We'll pull that lever and, hey all the job's done. I'd be concerned about that.
0: Yeah, no, I think uh, I think people who've had a go at local government reorganisation uh, will definitely agree with you that that's extraordinarily difficult. It's why we have a slightly odd, cautious model of doing it. We've had various comments about whether, actually, we should be you know, looking at creating some agglomerations of things. So we'd basically rather than just have sort of London as the base, we would have a number, you know, I think this is building on the hubs model that's going on now. So Manchester would be uh yeah, have a quite a lot of departments in it. There would be maybe Newcastle, maybe Bristol or the sort of places we've been talking about. And those should be just sort of you know places where you could actually have a whole career and move up in a number of departments. Yeah, I'm just sort of intrigued, Andy. If you were there, would you want your whole, if you were a minister, would you want your whole department in one different place? Or would you want it sort of distributed much more round and your health department officials maybe having to get promoted out of the Department of Health into a different department to move on, which sort of runs slightly against some of the government's other agenda about Retaining institutional knowledge and expertise, specialization. You know, what would what would appeal to you if you were coming in and being told, Minister, this is how your department's organised.
4: I mean, I think you do need a sort of a, a headquarters, don't you? Rather than it being so scattered that the department loses its sort of uh, kind of sense of cohesion. Um, so I think that does that does matter, and I think those headquarters should be much more uh kind of dispersed across across the country um but we've all discovered haven't we in the last few months that there's a very different way of working that um you could say is more productive because of um the 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 way you can use your day uh communicating in the way that we are that we are now i mean i think we've all found that productivity hasn't suffered it's probably increased a little for some uh, for some organisations in, in in recent times, I think the thing I would come back to, and I think it's what Paul was saying, and I just strongly agree with it. It's really important that government doesn't get itself into the mindset that this alone sorts out the regions. You know, where, where we have seen most success, I think the GCHQ example was a good one because it was it was a move that was linked to our industrial strength. Therefore, you know, it, it kind of it, it helps us create a new industry around it. And the BBC moved did it, did the same to, to a degree. The, the other point of good practice I would point to is where we have co-location of government agencies with our, our devolved combined authority. So we have, uh, for instance, Homes England have a significant presence uh, in uh, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority. I think in the West Midlands, the um, Highways England, I think, have have done something uh, similar there. We have excellent partnerships actually with the Department for Work and Pensions at a Greater Manchester level, and they're re- regularly to be found working out of our building. Those are the, I think those are the kind of things you, you should sort of build towards, not just outposts of government officials all working together, but a kind of mix where government officials are working with uh staff of combined authorities local authorities you know hearing all of those perspectives and working in a sort of you know in a co-working environment that that i think jill is where you're getting to a much better uh, model because you've got to break down some of these divides national government to local government or to regional uh, regional government get people more, working more as teams basically but it has to come this the move out of london with the, the devolution of power out of London. You know, Lord Kerslake said this in his, um, what I thought was just excellent UK 2070 commission. The UK is the most um, politically over-centralised country in the OECD and the most regionally unbalanced. And it is clear that there's a causal relationship between those between those two things. So you have to move out um, government, um, into different parts of the country to change the way decisions are made but you also have to put power in the hands of the regions and people have been praising germany haven't they throughout this crisis for the way they've handled the response to uh, to covid19 I-, I would put it to you jill that that is very much down to their system of government where power is much more distributed uh, across the country i think it's actually quite dangerous to be honest with you to run a highly centralized approach to to policy um, i think it's a much safer way of distributing power uh, around a nation and um, and working through those those um, um those dispersed uh, uh, organizations i think you know our response to you mentioned it at the start you know i think we, we've had a highly centralized response to this crisis and i and i put it politely i don't think it's worked
0: i'm just interested you were mentioning sort of co-locating People, But I wonder whether we should go further. In the first session today, um Ravi Gurumurthy said, actually, we should not be focusing on civil service reform. We should be thinking about all the people that are public servants. So we've got people who work for local government, people who work yeah. for some of the ends arm's length bodies and people who work for civil service are all in different systems they all have slightly different sort of rights and things like that and it's relatively you know it's not impossible to move between them but it's not we don't make it really easy i mean should we actually say there's a bigger reform to be had and that reform is actually just to recognize some people called public servants mark said well used to always go on about that that they're all public servants and actually you know you don't regard yourself as a civil servant working for central government you're actually an employee of Government service, and that could be any of these sorts of organizations. Would that make you sense? Know, I
4: think I think we' we're, we're about fifty minutes in here, aren't we? and I think you've yeah. got us finally to the heart of this issue. Um, because I think what holds back the the governance of our country is the silo mentality of Whitehall. I remember being a uh, you know minister, then cabinet minister. And seeing at times the pointless turf wars that go on between these departments and the viciousness of it at times, unbelievable. But that that's one thing. When this sort of lands on the ground, you've still got this sort of, you know, organisations that can't see the whole person or the whole place in which they're working. So the DWP with its sort of quite narrow kind of bureaucracy set from a national, national level. I mean, just to use that example, you know, we see it don't we over the over the years the sort of in, impersonal nature of of social security i daniel blake more recently but we've seen it in in times gone by you know a kind of system that can't see the person in front of it it just sort of has a you know a kind of machine-like approach to, to dealing with essentially very human matters but it's it's, it's deeper than that isn't it you, you kind of public services are always dealing with a part of one person's problems, never the totality of one person's problems. And I think you kind of almost have to rebuild the state from the bottom up actually around person and around place and allow people to break out of this silo, this silo mentality that that holds us uh, back. We have done that with DWP in Greater Manchester. We we built a new approach to the work programme, which is very much more based around mental health support for people. And it had Twice the success rate of the national work program. No surprise, because it was dealing with the person, not just the, you know, the the statistics uh, that that, that um, often can only be seen from a national level. I always say this, Jill. I said, will I'll finish on this point, but you really you've got me going on one of my favourite themes at, at the moment. When you're a minister in a Whitehall department, you can see numbers but not names. Mm-hmm. When you're the mayor of a city region like I am. You can start with names, not numbers. And I think there's a world of difference between those those two things. You can start kind of with place mm. and with people, and you can kind of build up from there around them and, and make services sort of unify around people. And that in the end gets you to 21st century public services. The old top down way, I'm afraid, just, just, does, just cannot possibly uh, uh, rise to the complexity of the 21st century.
0: So, Philip, a lot of people on the timeline are commenting about the bit of cognitive dissonance in this government between its rhetoric about dispersion, but also its apparent uh, liking for a more centralised model of concentrating power in number 10 and maybe a reformed cabinet office. So if we were going to embark on a Govian dispersal, uh, how do we do it to sort of maybe get nearer to... Andy's issues about joining up around problems and things like that, rather than just discover we've got a bunch of departmental silos that we've now fragmented in a bunch of regional silos as well. How do we deal with that?
2: And all roads lead back to devolution. (laughs) Uh, You can't run away from this. Um, And you, you actually have already in the United Kingdom, but it's sort of indicative that we haven't mentioned it already, but you have living examples of governments that are seeking to do precisely what's been described, to create the concept of one public service, to get everybody literally in the same room, the leaders of the public service, in order to generate that sort of spirit, if you like, of pulling, working together, It's even encapsulated in, in something called, in the Scottish case, Scotland Performs, which is creating outcome drivers which attempt to knit together different aspects of the public service. It, it, has it transformed Scotland? Not yet. Is it the right thing to do Indubitably. I think there is a scale thing here that if you proper devolution, bringing together um, the, the services of education, health, some of your social security, probably not all of it, transport, certainly economic development, you can get, I think, that brigading together um, of, of public services in a way that meets the needs of the locality. Some things, of course you're going to have to run at state level, um, and that's, I think, right and proper. But it's just worth pointing out, even if you're running the National uh, Immigration Service or running the, the Foreign Service, for example, you still, I think, need to be on the ground in different parts of the United Kingdom to, under, to both to explain what you're doing, but also to understand what the needs of the different parts of the country are um, in terms of developing and pursuing your policy goals. But the answer to your question, of course, comes back to the politics of this, um, that you can't have it both ways. Um, if you want uh, levelling up, if you want... Local economic regeneration, you have to devolve power with that. Holding everything in number 10, um, further centralisation of Whitehall, I think creates a very brittle polity, uh, and it's one that will not deliver, ultimately, the objectives this government um, has set for itself. So political choices, and it'll be fascinating to see how this government uh, takes those choices in the months ahead.
0: Okay, leslie Ann, last couple of minutes. How do we disperse successfully? Um, let's put devolution to one side. That's a different policy agenda. The government's on dispersal. How do we disperse without worsening some uh, of the I uh, I characteristics
1: of Whitehall? I actually think that the idea of trying to break down the vertical silos of government departments will solve more issues than the issue we've talked about today and i don't think that we can carry on working vertically we need to work horizontally if we're to think really holistically about citizen outcome and and that's got to change in terms of incentives permsec incentives performance the performance um, process and the spending review. I keep coming back to the spending review, but if we keep allocating to departments in silos and don't look at outcomes horizontally, we won't change anything.
0: And Paul, final word, how do we make this work for the people who suddenly discover that 5,000 people are, with good or bad grace, being moved up to them, uh, so that's something more than just oh god our house prices have gone up and you know our kids can't get home now how do we actually generate local benefits from this
3: well you would have to cluster it within uh, i would have sort of one move out rather than having lots of dispersal across the country and i'll be doing it in uh, in probably one of our bigger cities as well um implication of that then is that the infrastructure is there already in part but also you know there's this deep pool of workers, but also lots of job choice for somebody who wants to to move out um move into another line of work. The benefit of having, I think, that, that bigger move and concentrated move is that you've got more footfall on the high street. That thing will have you know increased demand for cafes, restaurants, et cetera. May put a bit of constraint on the schools in the short term, but hopefully we'll invest in some of that social infrastructure to uh, to go alongside it. But that's I think how how you would do this. But uh, just to sort of underline again, I think the 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 bigger uh, prize at play here is about devolution of power if we want to improve the economies across the country rather than uh, perhaps uh, glitzy, a glitzy move out of public sector uh, civil service jobs but actually it being perhaps uh, not quite as impactful as what we may think it might be.
0: Okay Andy one sentence to tell us why Manchester should be the place that all these slightly sceptical civil servants, I think they are because they're anonymous, on the timeline are saying oh you know spouse, yo." Know, London waiting, lower quality of life. I don't really want to go. Why should they come to Manchester?
4: London living with a much higher quality of life. Um, it's pretty much as simple as that, really. Best music scene in the country. Um, I was going to say capital of football, although we're not on strong ground after the weekend we've just we've just had there. But, uh, you know, so much going on. It's a fantastic place to be right now. I, I don't regret at all move that I made not 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 for one minute I'm much happier actually in the in the role that I'm now in there's something happening in Manchester at the moment and it's um, a privilege to be a part of it actually and it's, it's it's something that's happening in our country I think the country is beginning to rebalance and I just hope the government is true to its words it's been a great discussion tonight Jill I've really enjoyed it actually and
0: even better news England have England have just beaten the West Indies and in Manchester
4: I have that's that's to say that's that's as well so yeah not only are we the home of major events but successful major events as well but uh, okay. and i was just dreading the idea that the, the manchester rain would have killed our victory chances but that hasn't happened so uh, that's a relief uh no. for, for, Man- for, Man- for Man-
0: the four non-rainy days so well done manchester for that <laughs> good advert so we're all looking forward to the final one in that series can i just briefly thank all our panelists thank the very active discussion i'm sorry all of you have been debating, but I hope you've been debating with each other about the pros and cons of moving out. And this is a debate we're about to have. And I think the big message is dispersion is good, but dispersion is not enough. There are other more fundamental shifts that uh, are we need to happen if the UK is going to be governed better. So thank you very much, Leslie-Ann, Paul, Philip, and Andy. Thank you very much for a great discussion. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more And if you'd like to know about
1: our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash
2: events.